if you've been with us, you know that we started a series um, in Corinthians, First Corinthians, um, towards the end of last year, and uh, we'll be returning to to that series this morning. Um, if you have your Bible, turn with me to One Corinthians, chapter six. Our focus this day, um, this morning, will be the first eleven verses of the One Corinthians chapter six. So I'll read um, this 11 verses, and then we'll pray. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all, with one another, it's already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, as we open your word this morning, we acknowledge that this passage might seem to have no meaning to us. But we thank you, Lord, that your spirit is able to open our hearts, to open our eyes, so, Lord, we plead with you, the Lord, beyond my voice, that your spirit will be at work in our hearts, that, Lord, we would hear you speak to us. Lord, we would hear you call out to us. That, Lord, we would hear you say to each and every one of us that in the name of the Lord Jesus, we can be forgiven. Lord, we plead with you, that, Lord, your spirit would do what only he can do in our midst this day. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, as we've made our way through um, this letter, the first five chapters of 1 Corinthians, I believe at least two things should have been clear to us by now. At least they have been clear to me personally. First, that the Corinthian church which Paul wrote this letter 
had a lot of problems from divisions and disunity in the church to trusting and boasting in human wisdom. And as we consider the last time, they dragged their immoral lifestyle into the church where we saw that a man was having an illicit relationship with his father's wife. Yet, they were a church. They were God's people. Second, Paul wrote this letter to address these problems, like a kind of problem solver. But at the root of each of the solutions to which Paul gave to these problems is the gospel. Paul continues to show how the gospel, the good news of Christ, answers and addresses each and every one of these problems. In today's passage, Paul begins to address a different matter. In a sense, the wrong way that the Corinthians were settling legal disputes. Here, Paul is dealing with a problem of lawsuits among brothers. Brothers are taking one another to court, suing another brother. And immediately, our minds begin to wonder about specifics. What, what is this about? It's important to note here that Paul is dealing with civil cases, not criminal cases. Here, he's not dealing with issues like murder or theft or abuse. And I sought over the week to, to look for an example of a brother taking another brother to court, be it in the context of the church and the family. And then I, I stumbled upon a letter that a man wrote to um, a column writer in a newspaper. And there he says to her, he says, Dear Penny, my brother owes me over $6,000, and he's taking forever to pay it off. He owes money to banks as well. Would it be better to ruin our relationship and take him to court, or just forgive the debt? It's a lot of money. And he has owed it to me for quite a number of years now. Do you have any other suggestions of how to recoup that money? And he signs off by calling himself irritated. You see, the man is angry that his brother owes him. And we've probably had stories like that. And we see them in the newspapers where brother drags another brother to court in the family. But here this is happening in the church. Paul describes this as a grievance in verse 1. He calls it a trivial case in verse 2. He calls it a dispute. And just as Pastor James showed during the children's um, talk, if we use the idea of that scale, compare it to other sins, this was a little matter. It was a trivial case. And here, Paul reminds them first of two things. Two things that they have forgotten. As we keep in mind again that the Corinthian church was a church with problems. He reminds them first of two things. Two things to remember. One, they were to remember their identity. Verse 1 begins, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? 
You see, the Corinthians, we are, we are saints. And here, saints doesn't mean um, someone with a specific um, title before his name. Say, St. Michael, St. Joseph. No, the whole church, the people of God, they had that title. They were saints. They were people who God had called. As Paul also said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where he begins the letter, called to be saints. This was who they were. You were saints, the people of God. That was their identity. And secondly, they were members of God's community, the church. In verse 4, he mentions that don't take this case to those who had no standing in the church. But these Corinthians were members of God's community. They were members of the church. And thirdly, they were members of God's family. In verse 5, 6, and 8, he refers to them as brother. They were saints. They were members of God's community. They were members of God's family. And here he contrasts their identity with that of those to whom they were taking these cases to. Does it dare to go to law before the unrighteous? And those to whom they take these cases to are judges. They were unrighteous, verse 1 and verse 9. He identifies them as unrighteous. They were those who had no standing in the church, in verse 4. They were not members of God's community. They were unbelievers. They were not members of God's family. And so Paul contrasts the identity of the Christian with that of those judges who were unrighteous, who had no standing in the church, who were unbelievers. But yeah, Paul is not saying that the courts had no authority. Because several times in, in the book of Acts, Paul had appealed to the courts. He had appealed to Caesar to protect him from physical harm and danger from the Jews. In the book of Romans chapter 13, Paul speaks of the divine authority and the role of the courts in society and government. So he's not saying that they had no authority. And second, Paul is not saying that these judges were bad or corrupt people. In that day and age, yes, most of the judges were people who were rich and wealthy and had high standing in the society. And so those who had lower standing in society were at a disadvantage when they appeared before these judges. He's not saying that they are not nice people. He's not saying that, in fact, that they are immediately biased. Possibly. But that's not the real issue. He's not describing the judges actually as, in a sense, having immoral characters. They could have been fine men. And today, there are some non-Christian judges who are good people, who, who are actually better judges than Christian judges. And in some cases, depending on their knowledge of the law and their kind spirit, they could actually give fair and balanced judgments. But that's not the problem. 
That's not the point that Paul is making here. The real issue is that these judges have never come to know Christ. They were unsaved people. They didn't know the Lord. These men were not part of God's community. They were not born again. They did not see things from God's point of view. And so it was wrong for Christians in the church who had disagreements. Christians in God's family who had issues, grievances, and disputes to take their disagreements out of the church and to seek for judgment before men who were unsaved, before men who did not know God. The real contrast is between the identity of the judges and the saints. And as we think of these unrighteous judges, the application should be clear for us. Because the fact is that there are two identities of people. Either the saints or they are righteous. There are two groups of people. There are two kinds of people in the world and possibly in the church this morning. There are those who are either holy or unholy. There are those who are either righteous or unrighteous. There are those who either know Christ or who do not know Christ. There are those who are either trusting in Christ who do not trust Christ. There is no middle ground. You are either a saint or you are not. And Paul, in a sense, is, is angry that the members of God's family would dare to do that. You see, in the, in the original Greek, the, the, the first word that comes out from this verse is actually the word there. And the real, the literal translation of it is audacity. Paul begins by saying audacity. In a, in a sense, he's saying this is an audacious move. It's unbelievable that because you have this little disagreement in the church, you're taking it out of the church and seeking for judgment before people who do not know God. You see, every Christian here this morning has something common with another Christian that the world does not know. That possibly you can't even begin to understand. Yes, we have different personalities. And yes, we have our conflicts and disagreements. But every Christian is a member of God's family. Every Christian has been saved by Christ. And that is where the Christian's identity is rooted. The problem is not that we experience relationship difficulties. And we often respond in inappropriate ways. But it is sad when we begin to take such matters 
outside the family of God and seeking for settlement before unbelievers. So for us, Paul wants them to remember their identity in contrast to the identity of these judges. But secondly, he also wants them to remember their status. In verse 2 and verse 4, rather 2 and 3, he says, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? In verse 3, Or do you not know that we, that is the saints, are to judge angels? In these first 11 verses, there are three times the phrase, do you not know, appears. Here in 2, 3, and in verse 9. But here, Paul is, through this question, actually saying something that is mind-blowing. Something to think about. We know that someday, as the Bible teaches, that Jesus is coming back to the earth. That Jesus, as he has promised, will judge everyone. But here, Paul is saying that the Christians, the saints, actually have a role to play in that judgment. Think about it. The status of the saint as one who will reign and judge with Christ. Who will judge the world? Who will judge angels? As Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 19, 28. Truly I say to you in the new world when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. You who had followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That the saints have a role to judge the world, to judge bigger issues, issues that have eternal consequences. Every nation has a supreme court. And very few cases begin at the Supreme Court. Most times they begin at the lowest court. You can think about the magistrate court, the district court, the appeal court, before it gets to the Supreme Court. But there is a court that is above all courts. God's court is the Supreme Court. And in that Supreme Court, Christians, the saints, have a role to play there. And there they would judge issues that have eternal consequences. And here as Paul is reminding them of, of their status, judging issues that are bigger than they can ever imagine. The question he asked, if you are, or if the world will be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? If God has called you as saints, as people who will judge big issues, are you so incompetent then to settle just trivial cases of disagreement with one another that then you are dragging it and taking it before people who do not have the status? See, a Christian has a glorious destiny. The Christian has 
an eternal hope which the world does not know. Which those outside Christ do not have. And because of that, we must look at everything from an eternal perspective. We must look at everything through God's standard, not through the standard of the world. If you've ever seen a lens, say a microscope, and you, you focus it on an object, and, and the light shines on it, it, it begins to enlarge the object to show you even things that the naked eye cannot see. You see, when a Christian sees their perspective, their, their status through God's standard, things begin to make more sense. Things begin to appear different. And here they had lost that eternal perspective to things. They had forgotten who they were. They had forgotten their status. See, when you walk out today, or even in this building, those who do not know Christ, the only way they can understand anything is through all they have in time and space. But a Christian has a different understanding of things. Do you look at things through their status? That indeed Christians would judge the world. Paul reminds them of who they are. He reminds them to look at these cases, this disagreement, through God's lens. First, he reminds them of those two. And second, Paul addresses two attitudes. From verse 5. Again, Paul shows that he's not very pleased with them. He begins, verse 5, to your shame. It's a, the Corinthians had prided themselves in their great wisdom. If you go back to chapter 4 and just scan through it, Paul had described them as people who in their minds, they were rich, they were kings, they were the spectacle of the world, they were wise, they saw themselves as people who, who were honored. They had everything. Indeed, further in the letter, they, they boasted and bragged in all the various spiritual gifts they thought they had. Yet, they seemed incompetent to deal with a little problem. And back then in chapter 4, Paul had said, I don't want to shame you. I, say, I do not say this to your shame. But here, he says, in fact, I say this to your shame. Because it was shameful. They had the wrong attitude. They had the very wrong view of things. And he asked them a question. 
can there be just someone among you who is wise? These are people who are bragging in their wisdom. So if you are this wise, is there not just one person among you who is wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? In fact, Paul to them, shame on you. He's not being simplistic here. He's being direct. I speak to your shame. Not one, is there not one of you who is able to judge between the brothers? You mean you are going to judge the world? You are going to judge angels yet? There can be just one person who can decide among you. At the end of chapter 2, Paul described them as those who had the mind of Christ. And that was where true wisdom comes from. And if you all have the mind of Christ, do you mean that there, can be, there can't be just one person among you who would say, let's take a moment. We have God's word. We have the Holy Spirit. We can pray about this. We can look at this issue. But no, they had the wrong attitude. And the wrong attitude was a desire to win. See, courts are about winning, about winning at any cost. The closest have come to a, a, a law court or a court setting. And during the children's talk, uh, Zion was surprised when Pastor James said, we'll, we'll all go to court someday. The closest I've, I've come to a court setting is in a movie. And there, there is something about the lawyers and the courtroom dramas that they are so fascinating. There are so many shows and so many shows about lawyers and courts on TV. The most ones I've seen, the big guys never lose a case. They do everything to win their cases. And so courts are about winning. In fact, most times the truth doesn't really matter. The lawyers try as much as possible to argue in favor of whoever they are represented, representing. But here, Paul tells them that in fact no one is going to win. Everyone was going to be on the losing side. Yet, even if the judge decides, okay, party A wins this case, you pay a certain amount to him, everyone in the end will lose. Because as far as the cause of Christ is concerned, as far as the church is concerned, once the church begins to drag its issues before the world, there are no winners. No matter who wins the case, the people will look at them and say, well, you're not different from us. You're not better than us. 
You do not have anything different than we have. You have to have a judge come and settle matters between you and force one of you to do what is right. And so it was definitely going to be a defeat for them. There would be no winner. And that was the wrong attitude that they had. They had the wrong attitude seeking to win. The second attitude should be the right one. In verse 7, at the end of verse 7, Paul asks two questions. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Here Paul gives the alternative, the wrong attitude. Rather than take my brother before a judge, rather than take my brother to court, why not forgive him? Why not say, in the light of eternity, in the light of what I have in Christ, this is a trivial case. This is, in a sense, an inconsequential matter. I would rather forgive him. See, that is indeed what God calls the Christian to do. We are called to, to be tender-hearted, to forgive one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. And yes, forgiving could be hard. And that's why we read the passage in, in Matthew when Peter asked Jesus, how many times should I forgive my brother? How many times in a day, if my brother hurts me, how many times should I forgive him? Jesus said, 70 times 7. As many times as your brother offends you, the right attitude is to seek to forgive. Because God has forgiven you. And if you do not forgive, it shows that you probably haven't understood and known God's forgiveness. And that means that forgiveness has to imitate that of God's. In order to truly know how to forgive, you must know God's forgiveness. And this we are saints, this we are members of God's family, this we are members of God's community, and they were part of that community because God had forgiven them. And they were to extend that forgiveness to one another. And if you are harboring a grievance against your brother or sister today, you might not be thinking about, I, 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 don't, I doubt if any of us is thinking about taking anyone to court this morning. But you might be harboring a grievance against a brother or sister today. 
Well, if you've known God's forgiveness, you have to do the right thing. Why not write us of a loss? Why not write us of a wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Speak to the person and extend that forgiveness that you have received. Deal with it today. Compare, compare to what God has done for you in Christ. Little disputes and trivial cases, they are nothing compared to that. The sad thing is, as Paul says in verse 8, that you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. See, we should have that attitude of forgiving. And it is sad and it is wrong when God's people keep harboring grievances and and anger and bitterness against one another. Yes, again, you say forgiving is hard. Yes, it is. But in light of what God has done for you in Christ, think of that. From two things to remember to two attitudes. Finally, Paul closes with three big truths to ponder. Verse 9, the third, do you not know? You see, I believe this could also be, in a sense, an encouragement to the brother who was wronged. Because here Paul talks about those who inherit the kingdom of God. And again, when you compare the, the dispute, the trivial case, to the bigger inheritance that the believer has in Christ, then the very idea of forgiving and letting go makes more sense. And Paul reminds them, or th- brings before them three big truths to think about, to ponder. At one, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? You see, those judges that they were going before once again, they were by their identity, as God saw them, as God looked at them, they were unrighteous. They were unbelievers. This was who they were. And because they were unrighteous, they will for a certain not inherit the kingdom of God. These people did not know God. And so their lifestyle was just an evidence of that. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. One. But secondly, do not be deceived. You see, there is a lot of deception going on around that you can be a Christian and hold on to your past life and sin. And so God is happy with you just as you are. And here Paul goes on, 
Paul comes up with a list which he had first mentioned in chapter 5. Of the very lifestyle of the unrighteous. Remember, that is their identity. That is who they are. Their lifestyle is just a manifestation of who they really are. They are sexually immoral. They are idolaters. They are adulterers. They are men who practice homosexuality. They are thieves. They are greedy. They are drunkards. They are revilers. They are swindlers. This is who they are. And they certainly will not inherit the kingdom of God. There are no two ways about it. Those who live this lifestyle, those who are greedy for gain, those who steal, those who take what doesn't belong to them, who make that as a lifestyle, those who are sexually immoral, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. And do not think that you can live and then going back to 31st night with no apologies. Think that somehow if you appear before God on just before 11.59 p.m., then that would take you through the whole year. And then throughout the whole year, you live an unrighteous life. And then Tessa first, you come back again before God and assume that you can keep on living like that. The Bible says, do not be deceived. The unrighteous would not inherit the kingdom of God. See, and there is a sense in which each and every one of us find ourselves on this list. Because every single person in this room, with the exception of no one, is a sinner. You might look at it and say, well, I'm not sexually immoral. I'm not even married to be an idolater. I'm not a man who, who lives a life of homosexuality. I'm not a thief. I'm not greedy. I'm not a drunkard. I'm not a reviler. I'm not a swindler. But there is a sin that every man breaks. And that is a sin of idolatry. In fact, sexual immorality is connected to idolatry. When people worship anything but the only true and living God. And that could be anything. Every single one here is a sinner. And as Paul writes to the Corinthians, he reminds them in verse 11, such were some of you. The second truth, such were some of you. This was who they were. They were unrighteous. And so their lives were characterized by all these different lifestyles. 
This was who they were. Past and such were some of you. And that was their identity. And that is, in a sense, the bad news. And that's why Paul says, do not be deceived. Because yes, the gospel begins with the bad news. But there are people who want to make the bad news good news. That you can just continue living the lifestyle and do not come to God. No. Yes, everyone is a sinner. That is the bad news. But going on, we don't stop at the bad news. The good news is that word, but. Such were some of you, but. If you've ever summarized, sorry, I'm writing a thesis now, so it seems the word abstract is on my head, which is like the summary of the thesis. At the end, you have the keywords of your work. If you were to summarize the gospel in two words, if you were to summarize the good news in two words, or just in one word, it is that word, but. In two words, the key word, but God. Because the only hope for the sinner is those two words, but God. Such were some of you, but God. So the only hope for the Corinthians, the only hope for you, the big truth, the third one is, but God. The only hope for the unrighteous person is God. You see, what God has done for these Corinthians, in a sense, he had invaded their lives. He had come into their lives. And all the sins that made them dirty, God washed it. But God, but you were one washed that was what God did definitely when he came into their lives. He washed them. He removed the guilt and the field of sin in their lives. God sanctified them. He set them free from the power of sin and set them apart for himself. God justified them. He made them his own. That unrighteous people who could not or who would never inherit the kingdom of God. The only hope of their standing before God, forgiving and made whole, was that God himself had justified them. The broken relationship with God had been restored. And that is the only hope for the sinner. And he had done this in the name of Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Because it is only by the work of Christ on the cross and as the Holy Spirit comes into people's lives, that they can be washed, sanctified, forgiven, justified, restored, made whole. And Paul makes the same, a similar statement in Titus chapter 3, where he describes the old life. From verse 3, he says, For we ourselves, we are once foolish, 
disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But that word again, but, verse 4 begins, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, that is exactly what God had done for these Corinthians. God had washed them clean. He had forgiven their sins. And then we are to think about this. God had done all this by his grace. When I turn to the Gospels and you see the lives of people who encountered Jesus, you think about a woman who was caught in adultery. You can think about Zacchaeus, the greedy tax collector. He was a sinner. He was greedy. He was a thief. You could think of the woman at the well who was a prisoner of her own passion and seeking satisfaction in all forms of relationships. You can think of Nicodemus, the righteous guy who thought he knew it all. But when he met Jesus, he, he realized that he knew nothing. And you might be thinking this morning, this is who I am. I am the unrighteous fellow. But each and every one of those people, when they encountered Jesus, they left forgiven. Zacchaeus knew that salvation had come into his house. It was definite. It happened. The woman caught in adultery, Christ said, go and, and live your life of sin. And the fact is that that same Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That when the sinner this morning cries out to Jesus, you can know that forgiveness for a certainty. You can be washed. You can be cleansed by the power of Jesus. You can know for a certain that forgiveness. No matter how dirty or filthy you are, the truth is this, that there is good news. Jesus saves the vilest offender who truly believes. If that's not your story, if you haven't known that forgiveness, you can know it. And if you've known that forgiveness in your heart, are you moved to extend that forgiveness to others? Are you moved when you are offended, when your brother in the church offends you? Are you moved to also forgive? Is that's what this part is about? The church is a community of people who've known that good news, who've been forgiven. 
And if your identity is not, in, is not a saint, it's not a special saint pronounced by a group of people, no. Those who have had the call of God on their life to cry out to him for forgiveness. If you are not that, you can become that this morning. Father, we plead with you that you would warm our hearts, that Lord, you would cause us to to know that true forgiveness in Christ. And that we would be people who willing and ready to extend that forgiveness. And Lord, if there be anyone who has not really come to know that forgiveness in Christ, who hasn't been washed and justified and sanctified, who cannot say for a certain, this was who I, I was, or this is who I was, but God. Lord, if there is no one, or if there is someone here this morning whose testimony isn't that, Lord, we plead with you that by your Spirit, you would walk in such a person's heart. Lord, they will see their need. And that, Lord, above all, they would see Christ, who alone is able to cleanse us all for, from our unrighteousness. So, Lord, help us to sing our closing hymn celebrating that fact that a Savior has made us whole and with people who are living in light of that. In Jesus' name, amen.